This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio. Welcome back to Death by the Southwest, the show where each week we bring you a different grisly murder story unique to the American Southwest. I am your host, Margot, and I'm here with my sister and co-host, Jenna. And today we have a very special episode because this story today takes place in our hometown. Can I say hometown even though we haven't I wasn't born here, but it's I this... consider it my hometown. Yeah. Okay. Because I've been here pretty much on and off for 900 years. 900. Yeah. But so I. So you can call it whatever you want. If yeah. it feels like your hometown, I'd say yes. I would never say Chicago, even though that's where I was born. I would never say that's my hometown. I'd say Tucson is. Yeah. Well, then say it. All right. I'm going to say it. So today's story takes place here in our hometown of Tucson, Arizona. It is the story of Gary Triano, a millionaire real estate developer and prominent Tucson businessman who is celebrating his upcoming 53rd birthday at a posh country club here in Tucson when he was tragically murdered on November 1st, 1996. So before we get into the story about Gary, let's talk a little bit about Tucson, which I'll be honest, we've both been here quite a while. And I learned some things about Tucson that I didn't even know. And I'm interested to see if you know them. Okay. Um, but for listeners who are totally unfamiliar with Tucson, Tucson is situated along the Santa Cruz River on a hilly plain of the Sonoran Desert uh, that is surrounded by several mountain ranges, the Santa Catalina Mountains, the Tortolita Mountains, the Santa Rita Mountains, the Rincon Mountains, and the Tucson Mountains. So uh, five mountain ranges, and pretty much wherever you're standing in Tucson, you can turn in any which direction, and and there are mountains. We're in a that's probably the wrong word, but a basin. Yeah, no, I think that's yeah. the right word. Yeah, I think that's the correct word. Tucson, to me, and you correct me if you think I'm wrong. It's it's a big city within the Tucson city limits. There's about half a million people. If you kind of extend that out to some of the suburbs surrounding Tucson, the the greater Tucson area, there's about a million people in Tucson. So it feels like it fits the definition of like a a city, like a metropolis, a thriving city, but it feels still kind of like a small town a little bit. Yeah. I think a lot of times when people say cities, at least I think of like tall buildings and this and that. And sure, there's a downtown to yeah. Tucson with taller buildings and more concentrated living spaces and restaurants and bars and shops. But in general, I think of Tucson as a, a very sprawling city that still has a small town feel. Totally. Yeah, I guess that's what you just said. Yeah, <laughs> that's totally it. It has a small town feel. Absolutely. If we're talking about the area of Tucson, it's about 238 square miles and the average altitude is 23 
hundred feet oh. above sea level. Yeah. Oh, I was wrong because yesterday or the other day you asked me and I said like 1500. Mm-hmm. Yep. That was on the last episode. I mm. just listened to that actually. Mm-hmm. And if you go to visittucson.org, I went there today and I thought this was a nice little description. When you first get to the website, it says the soul of the Sonoran desert, the flavor of the Southwest. Tucson means wide open spaces and plenty of room to unplug, explore, and free yourself. Whoa, I like that. I've never heard all of that, but I like a lot of that. Huh. Yeah, I did too. So I have, you know, our, our sense of place geography intro, and I found a bunch of facts. And I'm trying to think, how can I do this? I want to do it like a question. So you you might know most of these, but let's see. I'm going to test your Tucson knowledge. How about? Uh oh. So Tucson has 350 days a year of what? Sunshine. You got it. It is actually considered the sunniest city in the entire United States. It has a year-round temperature average of 83 degrees and offers residents um, sunny and warm climate most of the year. Uh, The summer months, which are, according to Tucson, between May and September, where temperatures get a little bit hot, ranging between 90 and over 100 degrees. But yeah, over 350 days of sunshine. So Tucson is the second most blank city in the United States. I mean, that's a pretty broad. broad. Can you give me like a bit more? Yeah. Think about how you say the word. Oh, most mispronounced. Most misspelled oh, or mispronounced. They, say yep. tu- they spell it T-U-S-C-O-N. Yeah. yeah. Or they say it Tucson. Yeah. So it's spelled T-U-C-S-O-N. So a lot of people either say Tucson or they spell it T-U-S-C-O-N like Jenna just said. And or say both. Tucson. Yeah, or both. The only place that has more of this than Tucson in the entire world is the Amazon rainforest. Oh, don't give me a hit yet. Okay. Uh, Species of birds. Whoa. Nailed it. Birders from all around the world flock to Tucson to view the extensive and diverse species such as gambles, quail, mooring dove, cactus wren, and many more. I don't know what any of those are, but... Yes, you do. The quails are the ones that in the spring run across the road with the little... Babies behind them. Yeah, and they have the little... uh, Doobie jigger on the top and the mooring dove. Okay, remember once we were on the phone when you were still wherever with Georgia and you said, I can hear that bird. I love that sound. Oh, yeah, because it reminds me of I'm paraphrasing, but that was that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool. One of your and mine favorite artists absolutely loves Tucson and owns several acres of land in Marana. I already knew this. Who? Bieber. Yeah, <laughs> but it's not, I don't think it's confirmed. I saw it. It's weird you said that because I just learned that like a few months, weeks ago. I looked it up and I was, I told Michael, although he never comes here, he owns it apparently. He does. You may not frequently see him in town, but he believes the area is a good investment and owns several acres of land in Marana. I believe that. I believe it. A good investment, sure. And also Marana is being built up like crazy these days or has been for a while. Maybe that's why. I'm, I don't know. I need to I call mean, Bieber. <laughs> Give him a call. Let me know what he says. I'm going to try. I think this is really cool. I knew that Tucson had been named a uh, UNESCO city of gastronomy in 2017, but I did not know that only 18 cities in the world have been given this title and no other city in the United States has been given it yet. Only 
Tucson, and it received this distinction because the food here tells a story that dates back 4,000 years. The city's culinary heritage is a tapestry of Mexican and Native American traditions, and eating local means honoring history. I'd like to know more, and I'm going to put it on the lookup list mm -hmm. list of like what, because you said what qualified Tucson as the UNESCO gastronomy city, one of 18 in the country. In the world. In the world. Yeah. But I'd like to it's know more of like what qualified, because it's not just like, sure, tells a story of Mexican and Native American or what'd you yeah, say? Yeah, Mexican and Native American. It's the only one in the United States. Tucson is the only UNESCO city of gastronomy in the United States. We need States. to know more about that. Um, and we can't talk about food without talking about the Sonoran dog, which I have still yet to have. But we saw Mark Weens eat a Sonoran dog in the episode we watched the other day. And it's a very popular dish in Tucson. Where Mark Weens ate one, it was a James Beard award winning. Guero Canelo. Yeah. There you go. Say it again. Guero Canelo. Okay. Um, so a Sonoran dog, for those who don't know, because I didn't know, it's a hot dog wrapped in bacon and grilled, served on a bolillo-style hot dog bun, which Jenna likes to say is... A boat of a bun. Yeah, it looks like a canoe. Um, and it's topped with pinto beans, onions, tomatoes, a variety of additional condiments, often including mayonnaise, mustard, and jalapeno salsa. Mmm. Yum. Come hungry. Leave happy. <laughs> um, Tucson, we also saw this on Mark Weens. I thought this was cool. Uh, El Charo Cafe is the oldest Mexican restaurant in the United States that has continuously been operated by the same family. How long? Over 100? I don't know, but it's uh, the oldest, oldest in the country. Okay. Um, it may also be the birthplace of the chimichanga. As the legend goes, they were invented by Monica Flynn, who established El Charo in 1922. So yeah, over 100 years. She once flipped a burrito right into the fryer by accident, splattering oil everywhere. Since kids were within earshot, she resisted the urge to curse and yelled chimichanga, a in slang word that means thingamajig instead and then the chimichanga was born instead of what a curse word i don't know what shit fuck well i think she would have said it in spanish but i think <laughs> the only one and i can't tell you what it is and i'm i'm not gonna say it correctly maybe but uh chinga tu madre is like oh fuck, fuck your, your mother fuck your mother yeah for sure so yeah. i think that because i i've heard that and then we saw it recently interesting okay and before we get to the last one that I'm going to let you talk about. I didn't know this. The Legend of El Jefe here in Tucson. So only two non-captive jaguars, the largest cats in the new world, are known to reside within the U.S. One of them is nicknamed El Jefe and is a Tucson celebrity. Discovered in 2011, he can be found stalking the Santa Rita Mountains 25 miles south of the city. Jaguars are a near-threatened species. They estimate that about 15,000 are left in the wild. But pretty amazing that one of them is here in Tucson. One of the only two non-captive jaguars That's awful, in the though. Country. That basically means any wild ones are... And I'm not saying it's awful because maybe there are reasons to repopulate to keep them in captivity. I don't know. But... Mm. The wild ones, if only one is here in Tucson, yeah. they're not going to mate and oh, yeah, repopulate. Right. All by himself. Well, yes, of his species. But I have seen, not in person clearly, but um, I follow like the Tucson Weekly or I don't know what on Instagram. And I have seen El Jefe. You can see him. 
cool. Yeah, that's yeah. very cool. So that was your second to last fact. Yeah, I mean, I have several others, but you know, we're gonna okay, keep it concise. What's your last concise. one? Because I have a question. If you don't include this in your last one, no, oh, the dark sky city. Oh, yeah. Let's hear about it. Okay. Um, if you're a stargazer, Tucson is one of the best spots in the United States for astronomy. In 1972, Pima County enacted a dark sky code to regulate the brightness and number of outdoor bulbs in an effort to help local observatories like the one at Kitt Peak. Now, Tucson suffers from far less light pollution than most cities do, allowing stars and planets to shine through the darkness. It's cool because I live in central Tucson pretty much, so do you. Mm -hmm. And I can step in my backyard. See tons of stars. See a crap ton of stars. Beautiful. And... Also, Kit Peak is cool. I can't encourage anyone listening who lives in the surrounding areas or visits Tucson or Southern Arizona to head up to Kit Peak. It you feels can't like, encourage them enough. Right. You want them yeah, to. Yeah. 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 Did I say I can't encourage them? Yeah. <laughs> I will not. Also, maybe that's true. I, I don't want to encourage you. No. I really want to go. Didn't you say that's a place? It's like 70s style. It feels kind of 80s or 70s. What I like about it is you can meander around at least, what, five years ago when I went, you can meander around on your own. And the second you kind of park and you pay your, let's say, $5, you're walking up towards the main observatory mm-hmm. with the main huge telescope. Mm-hmm. There's also all these little signs that say, shh, at like 11 a.m., shh, uh, astronomers are sleeping because they sleep in the day because they work at night. And that, that alone really got me. I really I like that. that. Plus, it's a beautiful drive out there through Saguaro National Park. Mm. And it kind of reminds me of what you started with, like, come here and find your freedom or something. It's like real open. Cool. Yeah, it's cool. You know what struck me though? You didn't, what I thought you might say with a sense of place is how far we are from. um, Oh, I totally should have. Yes. I think we've mentioned that in previous episodes, but you're right. That is a huge thing. I didn't say where in Arizona we're located. So Tucson is in the southernmost part of Arizona and located about 60 miles north of the Nogales United States border. Cool. Yeah. And with that, I mean, there's so much more that we could talk about about Tucson, but let's hop into our story today. As we have mentioned several times, our story takes place right here in our hometown of Tucson, a place that is strangely referred to as the paradise of gun shop owners and morticians. In another life, I think I'd like to be a mortician. I could totally see that weirdly. I would like it. November 1st, 1996 was what you might call a very explosive day in Tucson. It was the day that Gary Triano, millionaire real estate developer and prominent Tucson businessman, was celebrating his upcoming 53rd birthday with 18 holes of golf at Weston La Paloma Country Club, very posh. But unfortunately for Gary, he would never make it to his 53rd birthday. In fact, he would never make it out of the La Paloma parking lot. Because this was also the day that Gary Triano's entire life, quite literally, blew the fuck up. So who was Gary Triano? Had you ever heard of him before this moment? Never. He was kind of a man about town. He was very well known in Tucson in the 90s as a wealthy, high-powered businessman. He's also a philanthropist, and he was kind of a staple on Tucson's social scene, which was... I want to say, I almost said hopping and bopping, which feels like a stupid mm. thing to say, but it was it was kind of big in the 90s, Tucson's social scene. I feel like the mid-90s, which this was, you said 96, I think, mm-hmm. 
it was a thriving uh, yeah. economic environment. Yeah. Real estate boom in Tucson. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Tucson and I think really a lot of about. places. Yeah. I think this isn't a political statement, but I feel like I associate when Clinton was president mm-hmm. that things uh, were thriving. Things were thriving. Yeah. Except for his marriage. <laughs> <laughs> True. So a lot of people considered Gary to kind of be a pillar of the community in Tucson in the 90s. Uh, If you talk to people who came in contact with him, everyone had kind of glowing things to say about this guy. Gary was one of those type of people that could be best friends with a ditch digger or the president of the United States. He had a wonderful personality that was sort of charismatic and people were sort of drawn to him. Even um, Gary's ex-girlfriends had pretty nice things to say about him. He was probably more full of life than anybody that I've ever, ever known. When I met Gary, he was 21 years older than I. And we would go dancing and we would go to the movies. And he was caring and fun. And charming. Extremely charming. It's pretty clear that Gary was pretty well liked. Mm-hmm. And his his appeal seemed to go kind of beyond just being charismatic and charming and whatnot. Uh, he was also known to be extremely generous with his millions, which if I knew someone who was charismatic, charming, had a bunch of money and wanted to be generous with it, gonna I'm going to probably like them. If they Ooh. were generous towards me, yeah. That sounded shallow, but true. Well, I didn't think it sounded shallow because I don't think all people that are wealthy are generous. I also wonder where was he generous, which I'm sure I'll find out. Mm-hmm. Um, but if he was generous to me and or people or organizations I cared about, sure, that's going to make me more yeah. apt to like him. Yeah, and he was. He was. He served on the board of several charities. He, you know, donated to charity from from what I could find. But he also liked to do small little things for uh, kind of people who weren't expecting it. Mm. So. There were a couple stories. You know, he would, he was at a party. He wasn't hosting it. He was just a guest. And he tipped all of the staff, like a, a large tip, and bought them all drinks. He, nice. he regularly gave um, valets like $100 tip just for, for getting his car. And then the one story that really stood out to me, his ex girlfriend actually explains it best. So I'll let her do that. I remember we were at a restaurant and there was a waitress that really seemed like she, she was struggling. He did an origami flower out of a $100 bill and he gave it to that waitress. And he did that not to showboat. He did it to be nice. He did it to be kind. So when he gives someone like a waitstaff or a valet or a whomever a $100 tip, mm-hmm. lovely. Do you think he did it more for them or more for him? I do. You gen- know what I mean? Yeah, I like the phrase that there's no unselfish act. I think that inevitably when you're doing something kind for someone else the 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 majority probably is coming from a place of goodness where you just want to do something kind for someone else inevitably you end up feeling good for doing that so there is some benefit to you even if that is not your motivation that is often the result yes i understand that no it does and also that's not what i'm asking oh (laughs) do you think it was more like more of the motivation for him of course like i can't ever have thought of a good act that doesn't bring someone good feelings right and even if it was kind of subconscious not like i'm doing this because it makes me look like a baller or like awesome i just wonder and i know you don't probably have the answer but 
Was he doing it to impress his date, his friends, really help the person out and still feel good, of course? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just, that's where my mind went. No one will ever know, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, I don't have the answer, but I think that's a good pondering. Yeah. Yeah, good pondering. So let's take it back a little bit and get to know Gary in his earlier days. Gary went to school at U of A, uh, studied business, and some people said that he actually got a law degree. Some people said that he just took several law classes. But either way, he did well in school, was very smart, and that's where he met his first wife, Mary Cram. The two were married shortly after college and went on to have two kids together, Heather and Brian. And even though Gary was a busy and very successful businessman, his kids and and wife felt that he was an excellent father, that he always made time for his kids. He was very present and um, involved in their lives. So in addition to being handsome, charming, generous, successful. He was also a dedicated, devoted, and and beloved father and husband, which begs the question, like, what didn't this guy have going on for him? I don't know. I mean, I could go into what could be, but I won't. <laughs> you know, on, the, on paper, he had all the things. On paper, he had all the things. And maybe all- he really did off of paper as well. Sure. For yeah. all intents and purposes, Gary was kind of a small town celebrity of sorts here in Tucson. And in the 90s, Tucson was obviously significantly smaller than it is today, which allowed him to seem even kind of like a bigger... A bigger fish in a smaller pond. There you go. And big or bigger is a is a good word kind of to describe Gary. He was, he was 6'2", over 220 pounds, so he was physically a big man. Mm-hmm. And the bigness of him went went beyond that, though. He had, as I've said, a big personality. Apparently, he had a kind of a big, booming voice that commanded attention. He had big goals and big dreams, a big house. A, a big, big bank account. A big bank account. Moral of the story, Gary was a big guy in more ways than one. He was bigger than life. He would walk into a room and everybody would immediately look at him and just gravitate to him. And one person in particular that really gravitated towards Gary was a woman by the name of Pamela Phillips. Pamela Phillips was a former model and a socialite of sorts here in Tucson. She was beautiful, blonde hair, piercing blue eyes, and tons and tons of confidence. Pamela was also no stranger to commanding attention when she walked into a room. She was often described as being a ruthless businesswoman and someone that always got what she wanted. And what she wanted was Gary. When did she first set her sights on Gary? Just at some social event? Yes. Okay. Yes. And she just liked, and I get you may not know this, she just found him attractive, liked his presence, liked his being. Yeah, she was taken with him. And she thought, I want that. I want Gary. Did she know of Gary prior? I don't know if she knew of him prior to like their first kind of running into each Uh other. But once she ran into him at some social event or something, she made sure to the best of her ability to be at every social event that he was at. She was interested. She was interested and she wanted to be around him, kind of rubbing elbows with him. And apparently she did with him and his wife at the time, Mary. Hmm. She was not shy at kind of cozying up to him, even though Mary was often by his side. Well, it sounds like in some ways she 
cozied up to Mary or became yeah. friendly with Mary as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah, a little bit became friendly with Mary. And yeah, like I said, she wanted Gary as her own. Mm. She kind of saw like a wife of 20 years, kids, happy family, like, eh, no big deal. She she, she was confident she could overcome it. Mm. And she did. As Pam kind of spent more time around Gary, he was interested and he ended up ending his marriage to Mary and marrying Pam within several months of ending his marriage. Very quickly. Wow. It was a quick turnaround. Yeah. Were they seeing one another prior to him leaving Mary Cram? From what I understand, no. Just he, got to know each other through social events and had interest. Yes. And there was interest there and and he ended his marriage and then pursued something with Pam and, and quickly pursued it and quickly got married hmm. um, on a yacht. At sunset hmm. in San Diego. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was apparently from, from the pictures I've seen, which we'll post, a very picture perfect black tie event. Just like Gary and Pam were, the night was glamorous and extravagant. Gary wore a elegant tuxedo. Pam had a Southern Belle style gown. And they were, you know, from the pictures and and everyone who attended, brimming with joy and happiness, a, a seemingly perfect couple about to start this just glorious, perfect life together. At least that's what everyone thought. Not long after Gary and Pam returned to Tucson from San Diego as newly married, whispers began flying around town and around their, you know, kind of elite social circles. Words like gold digger and home wrecker came up whenever Pam's name came up in relation to Gary. And, you know, I mean, this isn't a terribly uncommon thing if you think about... Uh, he was slightly older than her. He had left his wife of a long time who... Mary looked like a lovely woman, but perhaps was slightly less um, glamorous looking than Pam was. And he was very wealthy. So that's, you know, not uncommon, I don't think, for those rumors to kind of fly. But Pam didn't seem bothered by these rumors because she had her own money. She was a pretty self-made woman. As I had said earlier, she was described as a ruthless businesswoman. She was one of the first women in Tucson to really get in and kind of do well in commercial real estate hmm. So in the 80s. Weirdly, she would commonly say in conversations with people about her net worth, which was around $2 million at the time. Part of me thinks maybe she just said that so people wouldn't say she's a gold digger. I'm not saying she didn't have that. True. She probably did. That's true. I have not but seen But maybe her she was aware that people were... Thinking that. That's true. Squawking about she might be a gold squawking. digger. I like that. That's true. According to a close friend of Pam's, Laura Chapman, Pam stopped working shortly after the wedding. She stopped doing commercial real estate and she enjoyed a, quote, pampered lifestyle that Gary provided for her. Um, the two settled into a lovely life of luxury. They purchased a mansion in Tucson's Skyline Country Club. They drove matching Jaguars, and they kind of jet-set it around the world on Gary's private plane. It was like a never-ending episode of Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, kind of, from what oh. it looked like. Yeah. Mm. So all this money, you know, where did it come from? He made a lot of his money through a variety of entrepreneurial ventures. Everything from developing thousands of acres of Tucson land to investing in 
Native American-owned bingo halls and slot parlors. Here in Arizona? Mm-hmm. Oh. And this was before um, tribes were permitted to operate their own casinos. Right. But truthfully, like in researching this, it was pretty hard to nail down all the businesses that Gary was involved in. There was just tons. He had his hands in like a little bit of everything around Tucson. And he he tried things even if he, he took risks, basically. Mm-hmm. I read something that I thought was interesting. He made a run for Tucson City Council seat. And in order to do that, you have to live within Tucson City limits. Mm-hmm. He did not. He lived outside of Tucson City limits, but he still made the run and and I guess did pretty well. He didn't win, but he came close. Mm. And that kind of, to me, spoke to like his determination for like, fuck the rules. I'm yep. going to do this my way. And mm-hmm. I'm going to figure out a way around it. The rules will bend <clears throat> to me. Right. Unfortunately for Gary, not all of these risks always panned out. And life kind of began to head in a downward trajectory. Uh, Business, financial-wise, or just in general? Ooh, all of them. Him and Pam were together for for several years. And I know we hate the word several on here. I don't hate several. It just... It's confusing. Makes me want to say how many. Yeah. Uh, Many. But I don't know how many. Okay. (laughs) Now I feel annoyed at many. I'm fine with several. (laughs) Um, They had two kids, Trevor and Lois, but after several years, their relationship kind of began to look more like an episode of Jerry Springer than Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Oh, like dramatics. Yeah. Their marriage was deteriorating pretty fucking quickly. And when you say Jerry Springer, I think not only just deteriorating, like they they were no longer connected, but like, yeah, fighting, explosiveness. Yeah. Yeah. The marriage was going down the tubes. Coincidentally, so was Gary's wealth right around the same time. Between the crash of the Tucson real estate market and a handful of bad business decisions, Gary's bottom line was very much in the red. And so was his marriage. Now, some might look at this and think, well, Gary was kind of losing his wealth. And so Pam became less interested, Mm -hmm. which might you know, look poorly on Pam or shine a poor light on Pam. But in Pam's defense, she had become accustomed after years to being a millionaire's wife. Mm -hmm. And she didn't want to go from being a millionaire's wife to just being a wife. This is like one side that I don't actually believe in, but I, I could have a lot of thoughts about marriage, but ultimately it's like a contractual situation. And part of me thinks like, it's not... Is that what she it signed up like for? It sounds like he knew, well, here, I can give you this for. life. Yep. yep. And now I can't. And so that causes rifts. His his girlfriend later in life after Pam, mm-hmm. Robin had asked Gary what happened mm-hmm. to his marriage with mm-hmm. Pam. And he said, well, she fell in love with a man who had a lot of money. And I no longer have the money that I had when she fell in love with me. Gary almost like understood where Pam was coming from. He did, if that is why she didn't want to be with him anymore. Still feels like a tough pill to swallow. For him. For him. And unfortunately for Gary, this was the first of many tough pills to swallow. Hmm. 1993 ended up being a pretty bad year for Gary. It wasn't as bad as 1996 for obvious reasons. Mm. But in 1983, his wife, his kids, and his money were all just 
very quickly slipping away from him. He was upside down on more than a few bad business deals. He had numerous outstanding gambling debts and a handful of failed real estate investments. And that meant that he was pretty much broke. And, you know, Pam wasn't a fan of being broke. So Gary and Pam finalized their divorce in November of 93. And shortly after, Gary filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy for one of his um, investment companies. And he cited a shocking $40 million in debt. Mm. Eventually, it would come out that Gary was named in over 50 civil cases, many of which accused him of non-payment of bills, defaulting on loans, and countless other kind of truancies when it came to finances. Not great with his money there, Gary. Not great with his money. Um, There's actually a book written about Gary and this entire murder and situation called A Socialite Scorned. And in that book, it was said that he owed his first wife, Mary Cram, $1.8 million in debts and loans, a fitness club, $30,000 in past due fees. He owed a local attorney upwards of $90,000 in legal fees, and he owed two separate Las Vegas casinos, $30,000 each in gambling debt and hundreds of thousands of dollars to a group of Mexican investors that were allegedly involved, allegedly, in criminal activity, and that he even owed his own mother and a parent $68,000 in loans. And this was supposedly just kind of the tip of the iceberg for Gary. I know, I understand this podcast is a, there's a murder that's going to happen. There is, and this, yeah, I promise. But like, oh my goodness, that alone. And I'm sure he had other struggles, his divorce, his kids probably, totally. had, you know, just life struggles, his yep. own mental health, whatever, stress, life, dogs dying, all the things. Mm-hmm. I'm all, with that much debt, and that's just apparently the tip of the iceberg, mm-hmm. did he kill himself? I'm not going to answer that oh. yet. But- you're right. You just spelled out like all this terrible shit for poor Gary. And and the hits just kept on coming because we started this off with like he's the toast of the town. He's loved by everyone. Now he's bankrupt, divorced, and he was embroiled in an ongoing fight over child support and visitation rights because Pam decided to take the kids and move them to Aspen reportedly without telling him. Well, yeah. High highs and low lows. Low lows for Gary right now. Low lows. But Gary was a pretty positive guy. Even though all these terrible things were happening, he didn't give up. He decided he was going to find a way. He was going to get involved in new business deals, find new things. And How? He, well, <laughs> he kind of survived on credit and good faith deals with business mm-hmm. partners who hadn't, you know, hadn't been, been scorned yeah. by him yet. Yeah. He focused on ways to rebuild his wealth through several new business endeavors, Uh, supposedly some type of hydraulic brake system and a casino on the Chinese island of Hainan. He did have people still who believed in him because for many years he was very, very successful. Um, And it sounds like on a lot of levels or the only level he still to some extent believed in himself. Yeah, which is impressive because if I was like millions in debt, I'd find it tough to like pull myself up by my bootstraps and be like, okay, let's keep going. Just the, the, all the crushing, uh, crushing debt, uh, crushing debt. I can barely wrap my mind around it. Yeah. So another kind of facet to this story has to do with the fact that, yes, Gary was very successful, but sometimes very successful people also tend to develop enemies. Say more. (laughs) (laughs) 
I don't know because I'm not very successful, so <laughs> I'm not uh, familiar with this concept. Sure. I can, I can from I've an outsider perspective, say I see that. Successful sure. people develop a lot of enemies. And um, Tucson tends to not be a great place to make enemies. I realize maybe it's not great to make enemies anywhere. But in particular, Tucson has a history of being uh, not a great place to make enemies. Why? Well... If we go way, way back, we can look at the fact that Tucson was once known as the Wild West. It's a place that historically has been a stomping ground for outlaws and villains. Oh, and I know that may drum up images of like gunfights and shootouts. Well, that is what it's supposed to drum up, right? <laughs> like that is the old Wild West in yeah. the, what, 1800s and right. shit. Yeah. And we're not in the 1800s anymore. There but it is. Nonetheless, Tucson still attracts a large number of kind of modern day outlaws and villains, so to speak. They may not be like facing off in the middle of a dirt road, but for whatever reason, it has been a popular place for kind of a certain type of criminal to come and live. What is that certain type? Specifically, a lot of mob related criminals end up coming to Tucson. Joseph Bonanno, who was also known as Joe Bananas, is the boss of the Bonanno crime family, which was one of the five families that famously ran the La Cosa Nostra in New York. The mafia. Yes. The mafia. I love that name too. Bonanno. Bonanno. Yeah. I wish that was my last name. <laughs> I can call you that if you want. You can go by Jenna Bonanno. Jenna Bonanno. <laughs> um, in 1968, Joseph Bonanno was forced to retire from his mob boss position and he relocated to a home in Tucson that kind of had been in his family since the 40s. And similar to November 1st, 1996, which if you'll recall, I said was an explosive day in Tucson. Mm -hmm. um, the year that Joseph Bonanno moved to Tucson in 1968 also happened to be incredibly explosive. There were more than 15 separate and deliberate bombings across the city of Tucson in 1968. Oh, not on one specific day, but throughout that year, which is still a lot. Mm -hmm. Definitely a lot. Yeah. What do you mean bombings? Well, on July 21st, dynamite destroyed a shed at the Tucson ranch of um, alleged mafia boss Peter Horseface Licavoli. Licavoli? Don't know how to say that. The next night, that was July 21st, the next night, two bombs were thrown onto Joseph Bonanno's patio at his Tucson home, demolishing a wall on the property. And over the course of the next year, I guess 15 additional bombs occurred at various homes and locations in Tucson, all seemingly directed at organized crime leaders and other Tucson area wise guys. Initially, people thought that this was happening because Bonanno was having a hard time kind of giving up control of running that uh, leg of the crime family that he ran. Um, and they thought that it was the other four Cosa Nostra families that were doing it. As it turned out, it wasn't some kind of far-reaching message from La Cosa Nostra, but it was a former FBI agent who set out to kind of run a terror campaign against the mob. He he made these bombings. He wanted them to think that they were turning against each other, and they, they weren't. So even though Joseph Bonanno wasn't to blame for these bombings, he was guilty of plenty of other past crimes, which made his retirement here in Tucson difficult. What do you mean? As in people knew what he got down with, what he got into. Yes. And so even yes. if he was never convicted, he came here, retired, and people knew who he was and did not like him or 
happened? Was that like a full far reaching thing? No, no, you're you're spot on. Over the next 40 years, he moved here in 68. And for 40 years, he tried really hard to like live a clean life, polish his image. He's turned his life around. He's not involved with the mafia anymore. But the FBI, the Tucson police, And just kind of the media in Tucson in general made that virtually impossible due to his criminal notoriety. He kind of just had a target on his back from right when he moved here. You can't escape your past. Yeah, he had a real hard time escaping his past, but he kept trying. And one of the ways that he tried to do this was by helping other people. He he wanted to take the money that he had made legally or illegally, who knows, and, and try to help other people get their lives started and get their businesses started. And one of those people was our friend, Gary Triano. Ah, that's how (laughs) we're coming back. (laughs) Where's this going? That's how we come back around. Yep. So he financed Gary Triano's first ever business. And, And that may, for some people, raise the question, did Gary become Joseph Bonanno's friend or did he make a very dangerous enemy. What do you mean by the enemy? Like if he made Bonanno, if Bonanno was his enemy, why would Bonanno give him money? You mean after he gave him money? I don't know. <laughs> You're going to have to wait to find out on okay. the next episode. Okay, got it. We're doing a two-parter well, here. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll find out if Gary became Joseph Bonanno's friend or enemy on the next episode of Death by Southwest. And with that, we'll say thank you so much for listening. We hope you tune in next week to find out more about Gary Triano. And good night and good luck. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. And if you want to see pictures of the victims, the murderers, and any additional related images, head over to our Instagram right now. Our handle across all social media platforms is death, then the letter X, and then Southwest spelled out. So D-E-A-T-H-X-S-O-U-T-H-W-E-S-T. Death X Southwest. Death by Southwest is a Cavalry Audio production. Hosted by Jenna Schneider and Margot Carmichael. Produced by Margot Carmichael. Associate produced by Jenna Schneider. Executive produced by Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. Audio editing and sound design by Revision Sound. Music by Soundstripe. And a special thanks to Edward R. Murrow for letting us borrow his famous sign-off phrase, good night and good luck.